Good morning, everybody. Man, I'm glad to be with, with you guys today. I'll tell you, here's something you can do. It, it, would, it would reinforce and act upon one of our core values here, and that is that we, we're community and we care about each other. If you look around and you realize there's somebody you haven't seen in a while, somebody that you know, feel free to give them a call this week or send them an email or text them or send them a card or stop by their house. I don't care. Just do something to let them know you missed them. And, uh, you know, it's, if you really feel like you want to know that somebody misses you when you're gone, the best way you can experience a community here in our church is to get into a life group because then you'll be guaranteed that you've got a group of people who will know that you're gone and will care about you. But all the same, it, whether somebody's in a life group or not, if you notice that somebody's not here, maybe they're sick, maybe they're just busy, maybe they're traveling, whatever, just reach out to them and say, hey, I missed you. Can you do that? All right, one of you can do that. All right, we're all on the same page here. Hey, here's a great test of how old you are. I'm not going to ask you to say your age, but just let me ask you this. Show of hands. How many of you ever rode in the back of a pickup truck? More than once. How many of you in your car did not wear a, a seatbelt when you were a kid? You didn't even know your car had seatbelts. They were like, how many of you did, you rode your bike without a helmet? I did all those things. I'll tell you what, that is a great indicator. If you did all of those things, you were probably born before 1982, right? Because I, I'm just telling you, we did all those things. It was just the way we were raised. And uh, I never thought it was dangerous. I just assumed if something was unsafe, the adults in my life would tell me not to do it. What I didn't take into account was that the world was a much more dangerous place for the people who were running the world when I was a kid. When they grew up, this was their beach experience. This was just normal to them. You see this? Oil rigs on the beach at Huntington Beach. That's just normal to them. I didn't take into account that my grandma's generation, if they weren't riding an alligator by the age of three, they were sent to a special school to work on that. You know? I think about this. The same people who were running the world when I was a kid were the people who thought up things like biplane tennis and thought up things like high diving with a horse and auto polo. Who thought that is a good idea? The people who were running, the, and the, the same people who thought these things were a good idea were the same people letting me ride in the back window of the car. Did you ever do that too? I guess it's no surprise that the pendulum has swung so far the other way. If you were born after 1982 or, you know, if, you, if you're kind of in that later generation, we are so protective as parents now. We are so far the other extreme. In fact, I've just found it just silly, some of the warning labels that you find in things, like this Superman outfit. It actually has a warning label that says, warning, this product does not allow you to fly. <laughs> really, does that need to be in there? This is a children's cereal bowl, and the first line says, adult supervision needed, necessary. It's a cereal bowl. How unsafe can it be? And I love this Razor scooter. It says, warning, this product moves when used. And this one, danger, do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. Does anyone have to be told that? So why is the label on there? You know why, because someone somewhere along the way has held the chainsaw on the wrong end, right? And this is my favorite. This is medication from the vet for Parker the dog. It says, may cause drowsiness. And the last line says, caution. Use caution because it causes drowsiness. Use caution when driving a vehicle. No driving for you, Parker, while you're on your meds. Warning labels are everywhere. And, and I'm ambivalent about this. We live in a very safety-conscious world, and I'm ambivalent because on the one hand, I don't like anybody telling me what I can and can't do. On the other hand, I don't want the first time I discover something's dangerous to be when I die doing it. Sometimes we need somebody to say, hey, warning, this is not safe. What you're about to do is not a good idea. Don't jump off the house with the Superman outfit on. It's not going to work well for you. Case in point, Grand Canyon. 
you know the Grand Canyon's dangerous when you show up and you look over the edge and you realize, if I fall off, it's 3,000 feet before I hit anything. It's a long time to think about the direction of your life if you do step off. And so what you'll find is you get to the Grand Canyon, if, if you've been there, you know this is true, there are like millions of warning signs everywhere, aren't there? Everywhere you go, there's warning signs because 700 people in modern history have died in the Grand Canyon despite the fact that everybody knows it's dangerous. I know some of those are just like drownings in the river. I get that. Some of those are plane crashes. But a good number of them are people who go, hey, take this picture. And they get right to the edge <laughs> and go too far. Or they decide, I'm going to hike to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and back in one day. I would never try to do that. So there are warning signs at the Grand Canyon that tell you, do not go beyond this point because it's a big drop off. There are warning signs that tell you, do not try to go to the bottom and back in one day because you will die. And yet, people including me, have done all those things. I know I've gone too close to the edge before. Why do we do that? Have any of you done that? Gone to the Grand Canyon, done dangerous things? I think it, in our heart, we all believe we know better than the person who made the sign what's best for us, right? We all do that. And I get it. It's a free country. God gave me free will. We can all do whatever we want to do. But at the end of the day, isn't it nice to sometimes have somebody tell you, hey, that's unsafe. And here's the thing God will do for us. When he sees us doing something, using our free will and our choice in a way that's going to hurt ourselves or hurt other people, God will oftentimes send a warning into our lives to say, hey, slow down there. Look, there's a warning sign here. As we go through the story, we're entering a time in the story where God would send warning signs and warning labels to his people. And, but they weren't literal signs and they weren't labels. God sent prophets to warn the people and say, hey, you're going in the wrong direction. Now, we're going to look at some prophets over the next few weeks in the story. Nathan Hart actually preached last week, if you were here. I, I listened to the message. He did a good job. And what he did is he unpacked that unique relationship between Elijah and Elisha, the prophets, how Elisha was his protege, how the baton was passed. Well, what I want to do today is stay in chapter 15, go a little bit earlier in Elijah's life, and watch an Old Testament prophet in action. What do they talk about? What do they preach about? What do they do? We're going to get into that and the prophecy of the Old Testament. Now, when you say prophecy and prophet, I think of prophetic things. I think of like the future, telling the future, visions of things that are going to happen. And foretelling the future is sometimes what a prophet would do. But it was a very small part of a prophet's job. Many times the prophet was just simply sent to be a messenger from God. The, the prophets were like messengers that were warning signs to the people. Hey, you're about to go off a cliff here with your behavior, and the Superman costume's not going to help you. Slow down here, people. Think about it this way. As the prophets spoke to the people of Israel, we had several roles that were played in the, in the life of Israel. There were the priests who would represent the people before God. So people would come to the priests, the priests would go before God. The prophets kind of reversed that. The prophets represented God to the people, and he would bring a message. Many times it was a message of warning. And so what this means is, God would always send a warning before the devastation, before tragedy struck. You know, before the severe consequences of your behavior caught up with you, God would oftentimes send someone to say, slow down there, partner. Let's think about what you're doing here. Maybe it's time to repent. Maybe it's time to turn around before all this calamity comes your way. Put a helmet on and quit letting your daughter ride on the alligator. This is not wise. Stop where you're at. Now, if you look at the... the uh, table of contents in your Bible, if you've got a Bible here this morning, you'll find that the last 17 books of the Bible, of the Old Testament, are the prophets. 
Actually, there's 16 prophets. There's 17 prophetic books. Here's how they break down. The first five of those prophets are the major prophets. You've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, there's four prophets there because Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. So those are the major prophets. Then you get into the minor prophets, and you don't have to write these down because they're already written down in your Bible. But you've got Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, which is always really fun to say. You can say it now if you want. Habakkuk. It's awesome. Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They're the minor prophets. Now, why are some major and some are minor? Is this like the major leagues and the AAA ball here? Some have the super skill level and some don't. Actually, major and minor are just distinctions we came up with. And really all it means is the major prophets are longer and the minor prophets are shorter. You've got like Isaiah, 66 chapters. And then you've got Obadiah with one chapter. That's all it is. It doesn't mean anything about their content. And the, the prophetic books that we've got in the Old Testament, these are not the only prophets during the Old Testament time. These are just the ones that had writings that we included in the Bible. There are certainly other prophets that we know about that were named, like Elijah. He doesn't have a book. Elisha, Nathan the prophet who came to talk to David. There are other prophets that are referred to in the Old Testament that aren't named. There's prophets that we just don't even know about. So there were, it was a, a role that God employed very often to speak to the people and to warn them. Now, some of the prophets, and most of the prophets probably, talk to the people of Israel. Go talk to the peop- my people, God would say. But sometimes God would send a prophet to another nation. Case in point, Jonah was from Israel, but who did he go talk to? Nineveh, it's a city in Assyria. God says, Jonah, go preach to them. Why? Because God does not want to punish people. The Bible says God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Jonah, go to Nineveh, tell them. Shortest sermon in the Bible, I think, or one of the shortest. Forty days and Nineveh is destroyed. Jonah walked through Nineveh three days talking about it. Forty days and Nineveh is destroyed. And he wanted to go get a front row seat and watch because Nineveh was Israel's enemy. So he's like, I preached, now they're going to die. It didn't happen. The king, all the way down to the lowliest beggar, repented. Because again, God, that's what he wanted. That's why he sent the messenger to warn them, change your ways, and they did. And so Jonah wasn't too happy about that. It didn't last. They eventually went back to their wickedness, and God had to send another prophet, Nahum, to go back and tell him again, hey, it's back on. You guys are going to die because of your sinfulness. So these are the prophets, and he sends them to send a warning to people. Now, back to Elijah. Today I want to look at one prophet in action and see what he does from one event in Elijah's life and see how this happens. Now, two weeks ago, if you were here for the story, we saw how the kingdom that was united under Saul, David, and Solomon split under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Now you've got the northern ten tribes of Israel become the kingdom of Israel, and their capital was in Samaria. You've got the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin become the kingdom of Judah, with Jerusalem as the capital. In the northern kingdom of Israel, there were a series of 20 kings who ruled. Now, in the southern kingdom, I don't remember exactly how many kings there were. There were several that were good kings who led the people to God. Not many, but some. In the northern kingdom with those 20 kings, you want to guess how many of those kings were good and led people towards God? Zero. There was not a single good king during the entire northern kingdom's history. It started with Jeroboam, who got them off to a great start by introducing idolatry. And it just went downhill from there. And we finally deteriorate to the point where we get to 1 Kings chapter 16, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to that, or if you're in the story in chapter 15. We read this down in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, down in the south, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king of Israel up in the north. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. 
Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. You look at that and you think, what do I want on my tombstone someday? Probably not that. Would you want to be known as the most wicked king to date? That's what Ahab was. Now, I don't know if you've read about Ahab and the kings before. When I read it, I find the same thing over and over. I don't know exactly why, but I kind of, I kind of like him despite him. And there's something about Ahab that's just almost there, but not, I don't know. I look at him, and I just think there's so many things that we could probably all relate to in his story. He had some disadvantages, like his dad, Omri, set a horrible example for him to follow, and, and some of us can relate to that. I think about the fact that he was oftentimes trapped by his selfish choices, and I imagine a lot of us can relate to that. Um, Ahab was often unwilling to listen to God, and I think a lot of us can relate to that at one point or another. He was unwilling to do the right thing, and you know, sometimes we can relate to that. He married an incredibly evil woman, and I think we can probably just not say anything right there. Not going to do that. You know, Ahab, part of his problem really was the woman he married. He married Jezebel. And I'm not talking she was like a Jezebel. This is the original Jezebel from which all Jezebels descend. This was a truly wicked woman. He marries this Sidonian princess. She comes to live with him in Israel, and the first thing she does is she brings the false gods Baal and Asherah into Israel and says, hey, let's worship these. And Ahab's like, whatever makes my wife happy, I will do. So he builds a temple to Baal. They build an Asherah pole. And they go around and they start killing the true prophets of God. That's all at Jezebel's doorstep. She goes around and starts killing the, the true prophets of God. Eventually God says, uh-uh, this has got to stop. So he sends Elijah the prophet to them with a message. And you find this in seven, chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will neither be dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So that's Elijah. And I got to tell you, being a prophet is not a job that you would envy. I mean, think about this. Do prophets usually get nice, cheery messages to take to somebody? Hey, you know what? You guys are doing awesome. And so the rivers are going to flow with Mountain Dew, and it's the big rock candy mountain, and there's a lollipop tree in the front yard just for you. Go look. No, when a prophet's got a message from God, it's usually like, hey, you guys need to straighten up. You're not living right. I like my job. I'm glad I'm not a prophet. That's not my job description because, you know, I get to preach about Jesus and grace and God's love for you. And sometimes I got to say, you know what? You got to change your direction. This is going to hurt you. I got to get a little bit prophetic, but I've never yet had one of you waiting for in the park, me in the parking lot to kill me either after a sermon. So I mean, it's usually worked out pretty well for me, but a prophet lived a pretty dangerous life. When a prophet's told you got to go tell a king some bad news, it could go one of two ways. You got Nathan the prophet who goes to King David and says, you know what, David, you really messed up. You're the man. And David responded, you know what, you're right. And he repented right there. How do you think it's going to go if you're sent by God to go talk to a king who's the worst king, the most evil king, and his wife is Jezebel? It's not going to go real well. 
I mean, it could go one of two ways, and Elijah knows it's not going to go real well when they're killing the prophets of God. So he goes and he sends the message, and this is the message that he gives. God's putting a big warning label out for you, Ahab, Jezebel. There's not going to be any rain until I say so. For years, there's not going to be any rain. You're not even going to find dew on the grass when you wake up in the morning. It's just going to stop. Because you need to quit worshiping these false idols that you've brought into God's land. Now, can I stop here for a second and just take a little time out and talk about idolatry? Because, you know, in a sense, if there's one thing you would say Americans probably don't have a problem with, it would be idolatry. Because when's the last time you were driving to work and you saw people bowing down to a statue or running around a pole? Really, that we don't do that, right? So idolatry, of all the things we've got problems with, idolatry is not one of them. Well, just a second. What if we define idolatry this way? What if an idol is just anything or anyone other than God that takes your ultimate passion, your focus, your value, your hope, your glory, your commitment, and you're giving all those things that belong to God alone to something or someone else? Sound like an idol? Sound like maybe any Americans have any problems with any of those kind of things? An idol is any cheap substitute that takes the place that God deserves in your life. And then at that point you go, hmm, Maybe we do have a little problem with idolatry in our country. And the, the horrible thing about it is it's a cheap substitute. It just doesn't work. It will never be as satisfying as God is in your life. Uh, I think it's kind of like turkey bacon. I think I've told you this before. My wife loves our family, and she wants us to be healthy. So sometimes she tries to sneak in turkey bacon. It never works. Any of you like you get the same experience? Like, why are you giving me this and trying to pretend like it's real? It's not good. And I know my wife loves us, and I appreciate that, but... Bacon and turkey bacon just aren't even in the same ballpark. Do you know they actually make a candle, a bacon candle? You can go to Yankee Candle and get a bacon candle. Have you ever seen a turkey bacon candle? No. Who would want that? Here's my analogy. I think you can maybe follow this. God is like bacon. Can I get an amen for that? God is like bacon, right? Why would we accept anything other than God when we got the real thing right in front of us. And that's what idolatry does. It's a poor substitute for God. Listen to me. Your career, as satisfying as it may be, is a poor substitute for God. The relationship you have or hope to have, as satisfying as that can be, should never take the place of God in your life. Money, stuff, popularity, fame, Any of those things in their proper place are fine, but when they get elevated in your life to the most important thing that takes your focus, you've created an idol. You're looking to that thing for security or satisfaction. You're devoting your life in a way of worship that only God deserves. It's not going to do anything good for you. Idolatry never works out for anybody who practices it. So God is going to constantly address idolatry when he sees it because you are hurting yourself and you're hurting other people when you engage in it. And so through the Old Testament, you see God over and over and over again saying, why are you doing this? Why are you worshiping something that you made yourself out of wood or out of metal? Why are you reaching out to something that you made? It's not even real. You know it's not real because you made it. Instead of reaching out to me, God's constantly saying, look, don't do this. And so he sends Elijah and he says, tell him the water is turned off. They're not going to have any rain until they figure this out. Now, here's an important question. Of all the things God could have done to send a warning, why did he turn the rain off? This is really interesting. When the people worshipped Baal, do you know who they were actually worshipping? I don't know if you've ever read up on Baal. Baal was like the weather god. 
If you wanted your crops to do well, if you wanted rain so the harvest was good, the people would pray to Baal for rain and for weather. So what has God just done here? He is withholding his blessing from the very thing that the people have elevated to the place that only God deserves to be. Hey, you want to worship the weather God? Let's just see how you like not having any rain for the next three years. It's kind of like when God messed with Egypt's false gods, and that's what the whole ten plagues were all about. You all want to worship the frog God? Say hello to the frogs, and here they come. See, God will always do that. When you take something and you elevate it to the place that he belongs, he will withhold his blessing in that area, which might explain something that you've observed in your life. I'm not saying it's always true, but this may, may be why you find that God is withholding blessing in some area of your life. Just, I'm not saying it is, but it's something for you to think about prayerfully. What if somebody elevated their career to the place, and that's their ultimate passion, they're going to do everything they can to achieve and to grow? If that person were to pray, God, just help me make that next level, make that next cut, get that next office, and, and, and I'll be happy, I'll be satisfied. Why would God bless that if it's become a false idol to you? Wouldn't he be reinforcing bad behavior? What if in your, whatever it was, because you were raised and you, in a way, or you were just, you're so scared, and you go, man, if I could just have this much money, and then I will feel secure, and I'll know that we're okay, and we're set. Why would God bless that? area of your life financially if you've made it a god and you're saying my security is going to be found in how much money i have in my 401k instead of saying my security is going to be found in god alone why would he bless that if it's an idol in your life i'm not saying that if you're having a difficult time that is god withholding blessings from your life but maybe it's something to think about well god withheld the rain from israel it was over three years it got really dry finally it's time for elijah to come back and he does. And he says, are you ready to listen to God now? And he basically sets up a cage match between God and the false gods. And he says, let's see who the real true God is now that God's got your attention here. And you go down to chapter 18 and verse 16, and this is what happened next. And so you read at the end of verse 16, Ahab went to meet Elijah. And verse 17, when he saw Elijah, he said to them, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I'm not made trouble for you, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal that your wife set up and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Let's stop right here. Sounds like a Western, doesn't it? Yeah, Elijah standing there. It's like the shootout, the OK Corral on Mount Carmel. You know, and they're kind of setting this thing up. It's going to be your gods versus my God. Your 850 prophets versus me. Let's see who wins this thing. So they call the people together, and down in verse 21, they're now assembled up on top of Mount Carmel up in Israel. And so Elijah went before all the people who were assembled there and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Why didn't they say anything? Elijah is standing there. The contest is about to begin. And those people are assembled. They're going to watch. Just choose. Pick a side. Why are they not picking a side? Well, one, maybe they want to see what happens first. But I think it's deeper than that. I think there's something in them and maybe something in all of us that wants both and. 
I want God, and I want Baal, and, you know, if one's not working out, i got the other to fall back on. They don't want to commit to a side because they want both. It doesn't really work. Well, let's see what happens. The people don't say anything. The stage is set. They're here. Elijah gives instructions. It starts down in verse 22. I'll just paraphrase this. He says, here's how this contest is going to work. We are each going to build a, an altar to our respective gods. Build the altar with stone and put wood on it. We're going to slaughter a bull, each one of us. And uh, you put the bull on your altar. I will do the same with my altar. But we're not going to light the fire. We're going to ask our respective gods to light the fire. So that's what they did. You guys can go first. So the prophets of Baal start early in the morning. They build the altar. They slaughter the bull. They put it on the altar. And they start praying to Baal and to Asherah, calling out for him to answer. And here's a big shocker. From early in the morning till noon, nothing happened. You know, wow, I didn't expect that one. Elijah, at this point, starts to employ his prophetic gift of sarcasm. He starts taunting them. It's like, hey, maybe Baal's a little hard of hearing. Maybe he should yell a little louder. So they start yelling louder in their prayers. I don't know, maybe he's on a trip. I don't know, maybe he's in the bathroom. Yell a little louder. Maybe he's deep in thought and he's thinking about something. And so he says, you know what you need to do? You need to take this up a notch. So they do from noon all through the afternoon, they start screaming and running around and dancing. They start cutting themselves with spears and swords. And you know, I make fun of this, and this is really what happened, but this is tragic because what they did, in many ways, people are doing today. These, these people who are, like, bleeding to get some God's attention that doesn't even exist. Meanwhile, there is a God who really does exist and who's bleeding for them, and they just don't get it. It gets so late in the evening that it's evening time. The sun is going down. It's time for the evening sacrifice to the one true God. And Elijah steps in and says, Children, please, let a true prophet take over. Has the altar prepared, puts the bull on the altar, and he takes one more step. He has them dig a trench around the altar and then has them pour buckets of water over the whole thing. Why would he do that? Again, I think it's like a couple of things. One, I don't think he's being cocky, but I think he's saying, look, let's tie one arm behind God's back before we start this thing. Have you ever tried to light a fire with wet firewood? So he's doing that, but I think there's something deeper here. What have they not had for the last three years? Rain. He's like, why would you take the most scarce commodity and waste it like that unless you believe that there is rain and water in your near future? So he, he goes... He has the altar prepared. It's doused with water. The trench is full of water. And he doesn't yell. He doesn't scream. He doesn't cut himself. He doesn't dance around. He just prays a very simple, quiet prayer. And you read this down here in verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And here's what happened. The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. It burned up the wood. It burned up the stones. It burned up the soil. And it licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them. And Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. There's a, uh, there's a statue of Elijah up on Mount Carmel today where we think these events took place. I don't know if you can, can you see that. 
And I don't know if you can read Latin or Aramaic or Hebrew, but what that inscription says is on this spot in 850 B.C., the prophet Elijah opened up a can on the prophets of Baal. My Hebrew might be a little rusty. It may not say exactly that. When that happened, every single person watching knew that there is a God in Israel, and it's not Baal, and it's not Asherah. It's not those people that Ahab and, and Jezebel have led us to follow. It's the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't waste your time worshiping these false idols. Worship the one true God. Oh, there's one more thing. It hasn't rained in over three years. Elijah's about to take care of that, too. He said, it won't rain till I say so. Look down here, verse 41. Elijah said to Ahab, go, eat and drink, for there's the sound of a heavy rain. Everybody's like, what? I don't see a cloud in the sky. Well, the clouds come. Down in verse 45. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. Catch this, verse 46. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Picture that. Elijah in a chariot drawn by horses, and Ahab, and Elijah is running in front of the chariot all the way down to, ahead of the rain, all the way down to Jezreel. That's a prophet on steroids right there, man. Tell you what. The people turned, at least for that time, back to the one true God and found their satisfaction, found their hope in him. As we close this out, I just have to ask, is anyone here worshiping a Baal or struggling with something that maybe has taken the place that God deserves in your life? Is there anything that's pulling you away from devotion to the one true God? You know, maybe it could be a relationship. It could be a lifestyle that keeps you from being generous. Maybe your idol is an addiction that you've kept shrouded in secrecy. It's a habit you don't want anyone to know about. Maybe your idol is a grudge that you don't want to let go of. You know, maybe it's pride or power, or maybe it's just the simple insistence that I am going to be in charge of my life and the direction of my life, and I'm going to call the shots. And, and you've made yourself that little G God in, in place of God. Maybe you've just been doing what the people of Israel are doing. You're hanging on to God, and you're also hanging on to something else, just in case one or the other doesn't work out. Can I just tell you very honestly, and because I love you, that maybe God is putting out a warning label in your life today, saying, hey, stop before it's too late. Jesus would tell us that this way. He said, no one can serve two masters. You're going to either love one and hate the other or despise one and devote yourself to the other. You can't do it. You can't serve God in money. You can't serve God in anything else. If you find in your heart as you pray that something else has become more important to God than, than it should be, why not just repent? That's all God wants from you is repent, turn your heart back to him today. Can we pray about that right now? Father, we're human. And we're fallen, so I just know this story is probably true for every single one of us in one way or another. For some of us, it's a chapter in our past. For some of us, it's something that we're living right now. And I know, Father, that you have grace and compassion for anyone who will simply turn to you. And you're not going to point your finger in our face and condemn us, but that you want to love us and forgive us. So I'm just coming before you for all of us. And we say we repent and we turn to you and we want to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and sometimes we don't even know how to do that, so please be the God who guides us. Uh, I know that you've already loved us with an everlasting love, and you went first, so help us to respond to that. Help us to have courage and conviction. 
I just continue to pray, God, for this church to become everything that you want us to be in you. And right now, God, is, if there's anybody who's feeling something that you're speaking to them, please, Father, help them to act on that. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.